Good morning, everyone. We are going to dive right in. We are starting Christology 1 today. This is Module 2, Session 3, if you're uh, keeping track. So let's go ahead and pray. We have, uh, we're going to try and get through all this today. I don't know if we will. Let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for the Lord's day. We wake up as we do every other day, and yet today, Lord, our first thoughts are of you. And our goal and our joy today, Lord, is to focus our attentions, our minds, our hearts on the truths of your word to more deeply and richly know your dear son, Jesus Christ. And that is uh, very specific to our goal in Bible Training Institute this morning. Lord, I pray that we would see Christ more clearly. The truths that we hear that we already know, I pray they would embed themselves all the more deeply in our hearts the truths that we know yet have forgotten, I pray that we would uh, bring them closer to the surface and the truths that we have never heard before, I pray would uh, enrich our understanding of our Savior. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. So today, theoretically, we're going to begin Christology and, and as always, we'll go back and forth. Um, we're going to do the pre-existence, the deity, the humanity, and the nature of Christ. I don't know if we're going to get to all of that. Um, just to lay out the roadmap a little bit, after Christology 1, uh, we're doing First and Second Chronicles, which is the opposite of Christology 1 in that it's short, because um, there isn't a lot to say about those because they're very repetitive. Um, so on that day, we'll either finish what we started today or we'll maybe do a Q&A or something. So um, we have a couple of long sessions with Christology 1 and a short one with First and Second Chronicles, but our time frame is always the same, so we'll just try to adjust as we go. So we're going to start talking about Christ, and um, as always, I like to kind of start big and broad. What, are, what does our culture say about Christ? Well, there's lots of cultural opinions. Almost everybody believes in Jesus at some level. Um, you're you really, there aren't that many people who just say, I don't believe Jesus existed anymore because all you have to do is Google him. And uh, everybody, you can look up Jesus in the dictionary. He is an historical figure. There are very few people who try to deny the actual existence of a man named Jesus. But beyond that then, what does the culture say about him? Well, the culture, um, generally speaking, wants to tame Jesus, wants to make him in our image and make him a little bit more, uh, I guess, likable, you, you might say, uh, or maybe somebody that uh, fits a mold of what we think a good person is supposed to be. Some feel that he is sort of a fix-your-life guru, somebody to, to make your life better. That's heresy. Um, and that view doesn't come from outside the church. Sadly, that view comes from inside the church, from inside the doors. Um, the prosperity gospel for example, they see Jesus as somebody to fulfill your dreams and desires. Uh, others see him as a good teacher. Maybe uh, that ventures now outside the walls of the church. But calling Jesus simply a good teacher uh, denies the deity of Christ. And so we have a problem immediately. Others like to try to, uh, oh, if I might put it this way, overly humanize Jesus. And say that he's my best friend. He's, uh, he's, he's my bro. You know, he's just, he's that guy who's sort of my heavenly buddy. Well, what does that do? That denies the justice, the wrath. It denies the attributes of God, which Jesus fully possesses. And so 
Um, that's, that's making Jesus, uh, I mean, that's what all the popular country songs about Christ are about, right? You know, uh, what's the famous one? Jesus take the what? The wheel, yes. Uh, well, I hate to say this, he's always had it. Others say that Jesus is about social justice. Is that true? No. That denies the need for redemption. Jesus is about divine justice, not social justice. Others say Jesus is about being concerned for the poor and the needy. What did Jesus say about the poor? Ah, they'll always be here. That was his statement about the poor. Um, he was more concerned about redemption. The poor and the needy de- denies the overall decree of God that as long as we live in a sinful world, there will always be the poor and the needy. And I'm amazed at how um, liberals say that, uh, that this is what Jesus was about. You know what they don't do? They don't quote Bible verses because it's, they're not going to Scripture. They're going to their conception of Christ. What is, it, what is it called when you have a conception of God, a conception of Christ that is inaccurate, that is idolatry? You have formed an image. You, you may as well get a piece of Play-Doh and form an image and say, this is Jesus. That's what you've done in your mind. So, the cultural opinion gets it wrong. Even within the church, there are those that say, and this is a very popular position, there are those that say, well, I don't want to mess with doctrine, I just want to love Jesus. Well, what's wrong with that? Jesus Christ cannot be pitted against doctrine. To say, I just want to follow Jesus um, because, well, doctrine and theology divide the church. If you say, I just want to follow Jesus, I hate to say this, but you've already engaged in doctrine. You've already engaged in theology. You can't help it because any discussion of Jesus is by nature a discussion of the doctrine of Jesus. Somebody says, I just want to love Jesus. You know what you should say? You should say, well, what's he like? And when they begin explaining what he's like, you say, well, hang on. I thought you said you didn't want to do doctrine because that's what you're doing right now. Everybody does one of two types of doctrine, right or wrong. But you will do doctrine. You do have theology. Somebody says, well, I believe Jesus is a good man. I don't have a doctrinal stance. Yes, you do. You have a heretical stance that denies the deity of Christ. So everyone does doctrine. So you can't separate those two. An author by the name of uh, Thomas Oden in the book called The Word of Life, he says, this is the incomparable person we are trying to study whose extraordinary life we try to understand. The closer we make him the object of our study, the more we become aware that he is examining us. It's kind of interesting, in, even in our studies of God, our studies of, of Jesus, um, that sometimes we forget that we're the ones under closer scrutiny than he is. And so there's that mirror that goes back and forth, and that's, that's a good thing for us. So if Jesus, if discussing Jesus is by nature a discussion of the doctrine of Jesus, wouldn't it be our duty to get it right, to get that correct? Uh, if you're married, you wouldn't like to walk in on a conversation that your spouse is having with somebody else where they're completely misrepresenting you. That wouldn't be okay. And so we want to accurately represent Christ. <clears throat> so we're going to start and we're going to do just some, some foundational basics and take our time through it because these are uh, important. We have to start with the pre-existence of Christ. 
The pre-existence of Christ is important because in the eyes of the world, Jesus came into being when he was born in Bethlehem. That was his beginning. So we start with pre-existence and we'll uh, categorize this from different sources. First of all, in the Gospels. John said in John 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So what is this? What is this? This is the word that was before everything else. This is the word that was with God. This is the word that was God. And this is the classic verse, by the way, that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses in their so-called translation. By the way, the Jehovah's Witness translation of the New Testament um, was done in the mid-50s by a guy who never took a Greek class. Um, it was just him making stuff up. And their translation says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was a God. Because they can't believe in the deity of Christ, and it's very inconvenient for them uh, to have the hundreds of verses that show the deity of Christ, so they have to change it up. But here we have the word logos. It's used in a personal sense. This is a person. And we see that he was the agent of creation. All things were made through him. John the Baptist, what did he say? John 1.15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Who was born first on earth? John the Baptist. And yet he said, Jesus came before me. John 1.30, this is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So that's the Apostle John. That's John the Baptist. What did Christ say about himself? This is still just in the Gospels. His definitive statement to his religious enemies in John, uh, John 8.38 helps us. And then John 8.58, this is, this is the big one. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what did he say? I am. Now, that nearly got him killed from a human standpoint. He wasn't going to die at that moment, but they wanted to kill him. Why? Because they knew exactly what he was saying. That was an explicit claim to pre-existence. It was an explicit claim to say, I existed before Abraham. He said that his existence is superior to Abraham's. And it's an existence of a completely different kind. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He said before Abraham was, I am. And, and they would get the clear reference to Yahweh. His existence was with the Father. John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I love that prayer because uh, he prayed that in front of his disciples. Can you see those guys looking at each other before the world existed? And that's a phenomenal thought. A few verses later, same prayer, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. At the beginning of the prayer, this prayer is very specific to the apostles. By the end of the prayer, he is praying for all who would believe in his name. So I'd like to read that verse again and remind you that literally the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for you. This was his prayer. I desire that they also whom you have given me, it's the doctrine of election, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. How many prayers of Christ go unanswered? Zero. What does that mean? It means you will see the glory of Christ and you will have that 
eternal moment, if, you, if I could use that oxymoron, of, oh, this is what Jesus is really like. That'll be a great day. Christ said he came down from heaven. John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And by the way, this is one of the claims to authority Jesus said. He was preaching on heavenly things, and his basic logic was, let's see, how many of you have been to heaven? Uh, none of you. I've been there for all of eternity. So I think I would be the logical source of information. John 8.23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. He's not very subtle. He just said, you're from down here. I'm from up there. And then there are multiple sent statements. John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. There's even his implied preexistence. He says it openly, but there's an implied preexistence. Matthew 23, 37 O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. What is he referring to? He's not referring to the past three years of his ministry. He's referring to all of Old Testament history. And he's weeping over Jerusalem because of all the times that uh, he wanted to help them and save them, but they weren't willing. Now, if you've, if you've been through our... Um, angel of the lord series that i just finished that makes sense to you because you've seen that christ has been with israel all throughout the old testament what is he referencing though he's referencing specifically uh, in that context that israel had a history of killing god's prophets and of course they would kill the ultimate prophet with a capital p the lord jesus christ himself so that's the pre-existence of christ that's just in the gospels how about in the epistles my little clicker there we go the epistles and these are these are just little touches these are this is not comprehensive at all in philippians 2 he's called the humble one philippians 2 5 through 7 have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men We'll talk later about the, the kenosis, the emptying of Christ. It is not that he emptied himself of his attributes. Um, he emptied himself of receiving all the, all the obvious glory that was due to his name. Second Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And you think about this for just a moment. Jesus Christ as the humble one. There's no other being in all of history that literally owns everything and at one point in his existence had nothing. That when he went to the cross, literally the last things he had on this earth, his clothing, that was taken from him. And so when Paul says he was rich, he became poor, you can't even fathom the extremes of that spectrum. And so that's what he did for us. He's also the preeminent one, Colossians 1.17. I'll begin in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. 
If you were here a few years ago when I preached through Colossians, um, we spent three messages just on those three verses. And I would encourage you to go back and, and pick those up. They're, they're tremendous verses on the preeminence of Christ. And so he's, he's called the firstborn of all creation. Um, don't get confused by firstborn. Jehovah's Witnesses will say, aha, see, he had a beginning point. No, that it, it doesn't mean that. Firstborn in scripture also means preeminence, that he is first. He is at the top. He created all things himself. The uh, Jehovah's Witness uh, translation, by the way, it says he created all other things because they have to make Jesus a created being. And so they have to keep adding words in to fit their theology. He is before all things. The fullness of God dwells in him. He's the center of creation. He's the center of history. Um, some believe that, and, and I hold this view, that Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is what is called an embedded hymn. Now, Colossians wasn't written down until the 60s AD, but the church was already singing hymns. Why were hymns particularly important in the early church? Two reasons. Nobody had a Bible and nobody had a hymnal. And so hymns were taught to understand theology and they were compact and they were wonderful. And there are several examples. Some think that the, um, that the Philippians 2 passage I read earlier, Philippians 2, 5 through 9, is an, is an embedded hymn. And I would say that Colossians 1 would be an embedded hymn also, that, that God took a hymn that he had already inspired and, and made it part of Scripture. So he's the humble one. He's the preeminent one. This is just in the epistles. He's also called the spiritual rock. I, this is mind-blowing. The, the way the Old Testament and the New Testament are brought together here. 1 Corinthians 10.4 And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. What's the, what, what do we associate with Israel wandering in the wilderness and a rock? It is water coming from the rock. And Jesus even used that same illustration that from him come living waters. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. He's referencing here the activity of Christ in the Old Testament that when the Jews rejected God and he was punishing them with the serpents biting them, he says that, uh, Paul says that they were rejecting Christ. Now, that begs the question, just as a little side note here, and I want to be very clear about this, in our church at least, the people in the Old Testament understood that their faith was in a coming Messiah. The birth of Jesus was not supposed to be this big surprise. It was supposed to be a logical outcome to all of the Old Testament. That's why Jesus railed against the Pharisees, saying, you should have known I was coming. He, he was... Uh, exasperated with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus when they you know, expressed, well, we're not sure what's going on. And he said, haven't you read the Bible? And that's when he preaches about himself through all the Old Testament. It should have been obvious. And so uh, it's not as if the old people in the Old Testament were just kind of wandering around like blind men and women who had no idea about a coming Messiah. They, the, the, the Old Testament saturated with a coming Messiah. Moses told them he was coming, told them he was coming. So that's just in the epistles. This is still just the pre-existence of Christ. Speaking of the Old Testament, just a few little examples here. You have the throne room vision, the famous vision of Isaiah. The vision of the glory of God. 
God told Isaiah in Isaiah 6.10, Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, what's the context of, of God telling this to Isaiah? Isaiah has just appeared, spiritually speaking, we don't know whether he was actually in the temple and it turned into a vision of heaven or we're not totally sure. But in some way, shape or form, he saw the glory of God seated in the throne room, um, the train of his robe and the angels and uh, crying out, holy, holy, holy. And that's when God tells Isaiah, here's your ministry. Preach the word so that they won't understand because that's going to be the outcome of your ministry. Talk about, from a worldly standpoint, unsuccessful. Isaiah ministered for six decades and his thanks um, from all the people he ministered to was to be sawn in half by King, King uh, Manasseh. Where do we, else do we see this reference though? John 12, beginning in verse 39, therefore they could not believe For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of whom? Christ. Isaiah saw the glory of Christ in Isaiah 6, and John 12 confirms this. I won't spend a lot of time on this. If you don't know about the angel of the Lord at Grace Bible Church, I don't know what to tell you. He's both identified with and differentiated from Yahweh. He is both and. He received worship from Moses, Exodus 3. He received worship from Joshua in Joshua 5. And he never appears again after the birth of Christ because now we know his name. We talked about this just last time too. The messenger of Malachi 3.1, John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. That's, that's powerful enough. I got to build a whole sermon on that one phrase. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant, that's Christ, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then the Old Testament says that Messiah is eternal. He never began to exist. Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. We we have trouble picturing eternity, but we've been in the world a lot longer than the ancient Hebrews were. And we have the benefit of history. We can read about history that's thousands of years old. They didn't necessarily have that benefit. And so when Micah says that the Messiah is... His coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That's a way of saying before time began that he has always been. He's preexistent in glory. He came in his humiliation and now he's glorified in his humanity and in his deity. That's just from the Old Testament. So there's the preexistence of Christ. Why would that be so important? Because if Christ isn't preexistent, then he can't be God. And so, and our salvation hinges on that. Speaking of which, let's go on to the deity of Christ. This is a pretty key question, the deity of Christ, because, let me put it this way, uh, I was reading um, Martin Lloyd-Jones in Romans 1, and he makes this pretty interesting point. That Buddhism is still Buddhism without Buddha. 
right? And that's pretty important for them because Buddha's dead. Uh, Confucianism is still Confucianism without Confucius because it's a set of ideas. Is Christianity still Christianity without Christ? No. Our faith is, it, it hinges on a person, a person who is alive. And so the, the doctrine of the deity of Christ is hugely important. It's not because uh, we don't believe the doctrine of the deity of Christ because of a few little proof texts. Uh, and there are plenty of them. But really the deity of Christ is woven into the fabric of the New Testament. And we've made the case that it's woven into the fabric of the Old Testament as well. Just, just not as clearly as in the New Testament. Now, I want to be real clear. Pre-existence does not in and of itself prove deity. Um, the, the Colossian heresy that Paul was addressing apparently said that Jesus was pre-existent, yet he was a created being. That's the same heresy as the Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, yeah, he was before uh, uh, everything else. He was just the first thing to be created. So pre-existence doesn't in and of itself prove deity, but it does contribute heavily to it. The Arian heresy, A-R-I-A-N, made up by Arius of the 4th century, this denied the eternal nature of Christ. And so since that time, pre-existence has been linked, um, really joined at the hip with deity. You have to have both of them together. But let's start here. The divine names applied to, to Christ. And the first one, obviously, God. John 1.1, 1, 1, the word was God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The context here is still the word of John 1.1. 1, 1. And you notice, um, by the way, the doctrine of the Trinity, the overall doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible, very often you get, you get two out of three of the persons of the Godhead um, together. And so we link those together. And this one is no exception. No one has ever seen God who is at the Father's side. So you have both together. John twenty twenty eight. Thomas said, My Lord and my God. He wasn't speaking to two different people. He was speaking to Christ, my Lord and my God, and Jesus accepted this worship. Hebrews 1.8, I, I think really the greatest single statement of the deity of Christ in the, in the Bible because this is God the Father speaking very, very clearly. But of the Son, he says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So when God the Father calls the Son God, that's a pretty good witness. 1 John 5.20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Romans 9.5, He is called God, blessed forever. Titus 2.13, he is the blessed hope and God. So he's called God in the Bible enough times to make us suspicious that maybe Jesus is actually God. He's also called the Lord, kurios in Greek, which can mean just a a master in general. But generally speaking in the New Testament, it is is a reference to uh, kurios as God. And how do we know this? Because... In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, kurios is what is used over 6,000 times to translate Yahweh. In fact, that's where we get the tradition, which I don't like in our English Bibles, of translating Yahweh as what? Lord. And so, um, it's very clear that when Jesus is called Lord, 
generally speaking, that is a, a designation of deity. Now, I'll just rifle through this. Luke 2.11, the Savior, Christ the Lord. Matthew 15.22, the Lord, the Son of David. John 20.28, 20, my Lord and my God. Acts 10.36, he's the Lord of all. 2 Peter 3.2, he's Lord and Savior. Acts 2.36, both Lord and Christ. Matthew 11.25, Jesus calls the Father Lord. Luke 20.37, he's the God of patriarchs who is Lord. And Acts 16.31, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's called the Lord. It's all over the place, especially in the New Testament. And so we have to see that as a designation of deity. This is an important one as well, a divine name. He's called the Holy One. Mark one twenty four and Luke 4.34, he's called the Holy One, not by people, but by demons. And, you know, the book of James says that the demons know who Christ is. Their theology is fine. They just rebelled against Christ. John 6.69, he's called the Holy One by the disciples, by Peter. Acts 2.27, Acts 3.14, he is called the Holy One by Peter in the sermons of Peter. Acts 13.35, he's called the Holy One by Paul. Now, Peter and Paul, these are guys who would, and John as well, these are guys who would defend adamantly that there is only one God. They would defend uh, the Shema from uh, Deuteronomy 6, that the Lord our God, He is one. And yet they said that He is the Holy One, that Christ is the Holy One. So um, does that mean they've, they've uh, putzed out on their belief in one God? No, they just have a greater understanding than the believers in the Old Testament did. That God is three persons, one God. How about this title? This is important. The Son of God. I gave you a couple of examples. This was very familiar to the Jews from the Old Testament. Now, when we say the Son of God, when we think of somebody's son, we don't think the same way as they did in Scripture. And so we need to understand this. We need to build the bridge from our thinking backwards to theirs. When I think of your son, that doesn't mean that that's you. But when we talk about the Son of God, to the Old Testament Jew and to the Jew in Jesus' day, to them that was obvious. That if you say I'm the Son of God, you're saying I'm God. Why is that? Well, think of it this way, and this is going to sound crass, and I don't mean it to, but if a God is going to give birth, logically, what is he going to create or give birth to? Another God, right? And that's just general worldwide pagan thinking. Well, the Hebrews understood that anybody who says I'm related to God in some way claims to be God. And so the idea of the Son of God um, is very familiar to them. It's familiar to the Jews from the Old Testament. Psalm 2, verses 7 and 12, kiss the Son. He's the King. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty what? God. They understood the Son of God as God. This was taken to mean equal with God. In fact, they were clear enough about this that, um, that they tried to kill Jesus over it. John five eighteen. this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Just a side note, when Scripture says he was breaking the Sabbath, it is accurate to say he was breaking the man-made traditions of Sabbath. Jesus never broke the law, but he did break man-made traditions, and I tend to think he enjoyed doing it. 
Oh, look, it's Saturday. It's Sabbath. Let's go do something that they don't like. John 19, 7, the Jews answered them, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Ultimately, what excuse did the Jews use to crucify Christ? They used the excuse of blasphemy that he claimed to be God because he's the son of God. Others ascribed sonship to Christ. God the Father did in Mark 1. I'll rifle through these pretty quick. The demons ascribed sonship to Christ. Mark 3.11, Matthew 8.29. By the way, they were compelled to acknowledge the Son of God's identity. They, they didn't have a choice. They said who he was. They had no choice. The angels acknowledged the sonship of Christ. In Luke 1.32 and 35, John the Baptist acknowledged the sonship of Christ. The disciples did. Nathaniel did in John 1.49. Martha did in John 11.27. Now, there's um, a couple of expressions related to sonship, and I want to just take a moment on this, and I don't think that's on the slide. So you can just listen to this. How many of you uh, ever memorized John 3.16 in the King James Version? For God sent his, what? Only begotten son, right? And we, we kind of go, okay, well... Uh, you know, some of the, some of the old um, reformed uh, declarations of faith say that he is begotten but not created in an attempt to try to explain this. So let me explain this. The Greek word here is monogenes. And it's basically a confusion over root words. Monogenes sounds a lot and looks a lot like a word that means origins or to be born but what it really is, is one and only, or unique. And so it's a better translation that says, that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, not his only begotten son. And then you have uh, the Greek word, um, pradatakos. Try to say that without biting your tongue. Pradatakos means firstborn. It's a position of authority and priority, and we already talked about this. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's sonship. It doesn't mean that he came into existence. It means that he holds the position of the one and only son. Now, this, that, the son of God, we kind of understand. This one may be a little more confusing. He is called the son of man. And in fact, this is the title that Jesus used of himself more than any other. He, he referred to himself often in the third person. The son of man comes. The son of man does. He used this over 80 times. The key to this understanding is that he is referring to himself as the fulfillment of Daniel 7.13. And notice the Trinitarian overtones here. Daniel 7.13 says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man so we'll stop right there for a moment. He's in the clouds of heaven. So one like a son of man. What does that mean? One that appears to be human. And he came to the ancient of days. Well, everybody knows who the ancient of days is. That's God. Especially since in your Bible, ancient of days is capitalized, right? That gives it away. And he was presented before him. So you have a human being presented before God who's in the heavenlies. And this is, this, is a, this is a very eternal picture. So in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 63, 
Jesus makes a direct reference to Daniel 7.13. Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, Jesus has taken Daniel 7.13 and he's given us the context. The Son of Man being presented before the Ancient of Days is the moment before his second coming. That he is being presented as, all right, is everybody ready? Let's go. And Jesus now presents that as, I am the Son of God, I am the Messiah, and I will be coming. He says, you will see him coming on the clouds of heaven. When the high priest Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. Why? Because to call himself the son of man is to call himself God. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And so Jesus equates the son of man and the son of God. It's the same thing, same person. So those are just just the names of God uh, applied to Christ. Let's see how much farther we can get here. I think we can do it. Divine attributes applied to Christ. Again, a short list. And I won't take a long time on this because I think you, you've been well trained and this is pretty obvious. Colossians 2.9 For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What does that mean? Everything that God is, Jesus is. Everything that Jesus is, God is. Let's go back and forth. He is holy. We already talked about him being the holy one. He's faithful and true. Revelation 3, 7. Revelation 19, 11. The Bible speaks of his righteousness. 1 John 2, 1. 2 Timothy 4, 8. His love. 1 John 3, 16. I love the fact that John 3, 16 and 1 John 3, 16 both speak of the love of God. That's easy to remember. His omnipresence. Matthew 18, 20. Top 10 list of verses taken out of context by well-meaning Christians. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That does speak of his omnipresence. It also speaks of church discipline. Um, Sorry, that's the context. It's not meant to bring a tear to your eye. It's meant to bring fear to your mind. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. How can you hold all things together if you're not everywhere? Jehovah's Witnesses like to say this. Well, if Jesus is God, who ran the universe when he was on the cross? Uh, Jesus did. That's simple. If you believe he's God, then that's not a problem. I can't wrap my mind around that. How is he crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me while he held all things together? I don't know, but he did. He is omniscient, all-knowing. Colossians 2.3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything that can be known, Jesus knows. And it's infinite from his standpoint. We have finite capability for knowledge. Um, That's why uh, Psalm 16, the end of the psalm, says that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We will continue to learn and learn and learn. Jesus from, a, from the standpoint of him as deity, has never learned anything. Now, when he came to earth as a human being, uh, the end of Luke 1 says that he learned and he grew, or Luke 2, rather. He learned and he grew. How is that possible? Because he was human also. And he was asking questions. Remember, he was in the temple and he was just blowing the minds of these Bible teachers. Like, how does he know all this? 
He is sovereign. He's called uh, the one who is sovereign. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, but our citizenship is from heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What is sovereignty? One good definition of sovereignty is right here from Philippians 3.21, the power to subject all things to yourself. Only God has that power. I had lunch with a pastor a few months ago and he said, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I just believe in free will for salvation. And I just smiled and took another bite of my salad and said, so you believe God is sovereign over all things, right? Yes, so I drew a circle on a napkin. So let's say this is all things. Where would you place salvation, in or outside the circle? He changed the subject. God is sovereign over everything. If he's not sovereign over salvation, then by definition, he's not sovereign. And we can't serve a God who's not sovereign. Because if he's not sovereign over salvation, oh, what if he's not sovereign over the moment of my death? You know, what if in heaven there's this you know, giant set of dice and God's going, is he going to heaven or not? No, he must be sovereign, and Jesus is sovereign. And that's why, by the way, uh, I don't know who started the idea that it's not okay to pray to Jesus. That's very odd to me. Why would you not pray to your Savior? The old saying is, well, you pray to God the Father uh, through Jesus the Son by the power of the Spirit. Yes, Jesus said, pray in this way, our Father who is in heaven. But the disciples prayed to Jesus. Acts chapter 1, they prayed to Jesus. Uh, Paul heard from and dialogued with Jesus on the road to Damascus and afterwards. Of course we pray to Jesus. He is sovereign. He's also self-existent. Now this is, uh, this will blow your mind a little bit because we really can't fathom something or someone that never started. We can't fathom that. John 5, 26, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now, right there, our brains begin to blow. Wait a minute, God the Father granted God the Son to have life in himself. That's a human way of saying that he has recognized that uh, he he has helped us to recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ is the very definition of life. He doesn't have a power source. We have a power source. Our power source is God. Christ has no power source. In context, though, also, um, when it says God the Father has granted the Son to have life in himself, that is the idea of, of acknowledging that Jesus Christ will raise himself from the dead. And that's in and of itself a little study. You could study and find in the New Testament that God the Father raised Christ from the dead, God the Spirit raised Christ from the dead, and God the Son raised himself from the dead. It is a Trinitarian action. And then, of course, the immutability of God, the unchanging nature. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. All right, I'm going to just take a quick peek at my notes here. I don't want to... I think that uh, what we're getting to next, the divine works done by Christ divine claims of Christ, and then we want to get to the, the humanity of Christ. I don't want to rush through that, and so for all of you desperate to finish uh, BTI, sorry, Nate, we're, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we're going to stop right here, and I want to take any questions that you have up to this point while I mark my little uh, page here 
And next time we'll pick up on divine works by Christ. What do you think? Ask some questions or make some comments. Brain fuses blown. All right, I'll ask you questions. What does your knowledge of Christ do to Monday through Sunday? Understanding him. Just what we talked about today. What, what, what should it do to your life? How about start on this side? Anybody over here? You don't even have to raise your hand. Just yell. Just yeah. Okay, increases your love for him because we realize he's sovereign, he's in control of every little thing. Absolutely. Yeah, David. Keep your mind on track and just thinking of him and meditating on who he is and helps you to yeah, meditate, keep understanding, instead of keeping your mind off track of all this other stuff that's going to be consuming throughout the day. Absolutely. The more you know of Christ, the more you're thinking um, right thoughts. And when your theology of Christ is reduced to, you know, he's my best friend and my homie, that's my theology, that's, you formed an idol that's an inch tall instead of um, seeing Christ as, as the glorious God of the universe. What else? What does is, what is your knowledge of Christ do to your, to your daily life or what ought it to do? More motivation. More, yeah, absolutely. Because the bigger Christ is, you're like, oh, he's watching <laughs> right now. Yeah, Chris. I, Chris, I think that's a, that's a terrific point because we're, we're honing in on the sovereignty of Christ. And, and the great thing about believing the sovereignty of Christ is that that literally gives us a flesh and blood person that we relate to. Um, that's why God the Son is the greatest revelation of God because he's somebody that we, we haven't seen him in person yet, but from the Gospels, you have a clear picture of who he is. You'll recognize him. It won't be like, hey, who are you in heaven? Well, I'm Jesus. No, you'll be running to him. But here's the beauty of the sovereignty of Christ. It, that's, that's relatable. Um, and uh, it's been said, and I, I agree with this. Chris brought up a great point, two concepts of sovereignty and worry. So picture sovereignty and worry on a, on a scale here. And it's better to be heavier. Okay, so it's better to be for the scale to go down. If this is sovereignty and this is worry, the greater your, or sorry, the, the, the uh, lighter your view of the sovereignty of God, the heavier your worry weighs you down. And the greater your knowledge of the sovereignty of God, then it goes this way. And really, this is why continuing to dwell on sovereignty, 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 just makes it to where... Just make the scale hit the bottom and the anxiety just falls off. That's the whole key. 
That that is everything. Yeah, Joe. Joe's point, and I'm saying this for the recording, uh, that uh, for, for him, knowledge of the sovereignty of God has given him peace in, in his business. Um, and Joe, I've seen that in your life. I, I see what you do one night a week playing volleyball when you ought to be marketing your business, right? Well, what, what, is, what, is, uh, what is behind the concept of God making Israel have a, have a Sabbath day? The concept is believing that he is sovereign and that if I quit working for a day, that God will still provide for me. That is a good, good exercise. Um, that's what enables you, if you're the provider of your home, that's what enables you, should enable you to um, turn off the moneymaker in your mind and just be at home and just be a husband and a dad and not worry. Because uh, what did Jesus say? How many of you by worrying can add a single day to your life? You know, it's not like you're, you'll be 95 and go, I would have died 10 years ago if I hadn't worried so much. No, we don't add any time to our lives. It's the belief in the sovereignty of God is what allows you to say, all right, it's time for me to clock out, as it were. And this is tough. I've talked to lots of self-employed men who have trouble um, clicking that off because work equals money, Right? And you keep going and going and you blink and find out, oh, I'm 60 and I'm still worrying to death about everything. I've seen guys with eight figures in the bank wrapping their hands like this because they're worried and concerned. It's like, wow, you might have to sell that fourth yacht. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen here. And conversely, I've seen men who live paycheck to paycheck like, like Joe, job to job, just peaceful, going home, say, hey, let's, let's grill some burgers. Let's enjoy ourselves. Why? Because you can enjoy life with a sovereign God. If you don't believe in a sovereign God, now life is tough, right? I've told you this story before. It still just makes me smile, though, at God's um, sense of humor. When my dad was killed in a car accident, I got to preach the sovereignty of God to 450 Arminians. My dad was a closet Calvinist in a huge Arminian uh, church. And it's like... Um, it was the weirdest thing. I was answering questions for uh, hours after that, after that message. And it's like they sort of forgot that it was about my dad being dead. And they were asking, how is this that you really under- believe this? Because the illustration I used was that um, my dad had a calendar with some appointments on it. But God's calendar said this is the day he's going home. And that I'm okay with that. So... Um, that, that was a phenomenal time to get to do that because it was the sovereignty of God which allows us to have peace. What, what else about just knowing Christ in general? We've gotten to sovereignty. I know that's our favorite. Yeah, Larry. Absolutely. So, yeah, Larry's point is that uh, 
the more we, the higher our knowledge of, of God, then I'll put it, I'll, I'll put some words in your mouth, uh, the more humble we are. Or to put it the way John the Baptist did uh, about Christ, he must increase and I must what? Decrease. Doesn't that make sense? I, ironic to me that in, in American evangelicalism, the most arrogant Christians are the ones who don't know squat. They don't know anything. And, oh, well, you know, I, I, I believe in this and that. I, I know a guy who's, uh, who can't, they're building, they're, their church is in need of some renovation and some building projects. And because he knows his church has such a low view of God, uh, he can't preach on giving to them because they think it's self-serving. He can't preach on sacrificial love in the church because he has a church filled with people that think that God is existing for their benefit only. And I had a talk with him and I said, well, that's your fault. You need to preach theology to them. Um, but he said, well, but we need a building now. Well, that's not, you should have, been, you should have thought of that five years ago. Because upon our theology then is built our obedience, right? And, and then it becomes easy. Do you love God? Yes. Do you have a humongous view of God? Working on it. Absolutely. So obey him. No problem. He must increase. I must decrease. Great point, Larry. Thank you for that. We're, we're out of time. We'll continue next time with, um, uh, we'll do this session. And for anybody who's listening to the recording, this is module two, session three. We'll do part two next time. Let's pray for just a moment. Thank you, Father, for these moments we're just beginning our lord's day and we begin to turn our affection toward christ i pray now lord that as we enjoy a moment of fellowship and then we come together you would quiet our hearts to be learners to be disciples to now sing the hymns of our faith to come before you with humility confessed hearts purity bowed heads humbled hearts that we might know you more and as Uh, has been brought up so well that you might become greater and greater in our minds. We might become less and less. And if that will be the case, then all is well. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.